Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about an update to the Myanmar situation, Biden's big day out, all three of them, and then we'll talk a little bit about cybersecurity. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so we have french troops uh, in mali have apparently been hit by a suicide bomber and taken substantial damage then in other news we have israel's new prime minister naftali bennett in a cabinet meeting discussion he talked about iran's recent election they also have a a new president well a new president israel has a new prime minister and in this discussion with his cabinet members, Naftali Bennett said, quote, A regime of executioners cannot have weapons of mass destruction. End quote. And he said this referring to the new president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi's, uh, his track record of sentencing people to execution when he served previously as a judge in Iran. So that's what he's referring to when he says, or a regime of executioners. Uh, I, uh, not Iran. Israel has also resumed bombing campaigns in ha- uh, on Hamas targets in Gaza. So the ceasefire is over, basically. And we'll see how Hamas responds to this. As the, well, the conflict that I said was really not over, but looked like it was over for the time being, uh, I was right, and it's not actually over. I just didn't expect to be right so fast. I expected it to kind of cool down and be, you know, be low level, uh, in low intensity war for the continuation of it until it got hot again, like it usually is, uh, with Israel and Palestine. But it's gone right back to being hot this time, and well, we can see that Naftali. Uh, is just as harsh on Palestine and Iran as his predecessor was, if not more so. And maybe this is from him being in a what is considered by some to be a pretty shaky coalition. And that, and he's new, so he kind of probably feels the pressure to prove himself. And you combine that with a new president in Iran who is going to be taking these provocations... Um, perceived provocations, whichever they may be to him, and these harsh words. And there's going to be calls for him to respond to Israel in some way, shape, or form. And we could see some some really, really real escalation. Um, And we've seen what Israel's been up to in Iran, where they've effectively just been bullying them with their with their spec ops units. But we may see a change where Iran starts to starts to assert itself more, like really assert itself, not like like how they've been portrayed as being this boogeyman in the region, but like really 
start to flex the muscles that they've built up in their region, uh, specifically their sphere of influence. And what better way to do that than to use the conflict that has now gone back to being hot in uh, Palestine? What better way to get back at Israel for all of that shit than to use the conflict that's happening within Israel's borders against them because Israel is boxed in by Iran's sphere of influence right now. Um, well, not quite boxed in, but Iran can get there through the sphere of influence, and they have significant influence within that sphere of influence. I mean, we saw Syria and Le Lebanon. We saw rockets being fired from there. We even saw rockets being fired from Jordan back at the height of the Hamas bombing raids on Israeli targets. So we could see the Iranians put their full force behind Hamas and really anybody who wants to go shoot at the Israelis and we could have a serious problem. Uh, well, the Israelis could have a serious problem on their hands. I don't know about you, but I'm on the wrong side of the ocean for this. We could see a legit hot war between Israel and Iran because... Or would it be more like a cold war? Uh, like a proxy war, except it's fought in your own country, and you'd rather fight off the henchmen than fight the final boss, or at least until you can secure your borders. Because I don't imagine Israel would straight up go to war with Iran uh, in the situation that they're in right now, where they're currently under an internal siege with the conflict with Palestine. Nevertheless, things are heating up there, and given the major shifts that have been going on in the geopolitics of the Middle East, um, namely from the growth of Iran's sphere of influence, the change in tide of the regional powers' stances towards Iran, and the increasing removal of the U.S., we have a brand new Middle East a brand new Middle East indeed, and it is interesting for once, you know, this century. It really is interesting, and I, that's one of the things that's really shocked me covering the things that's happening here, is that it's become so interesting. And I've said it before, how I didn't want to look at this part of the world on a map anymore. Now it's really, really intriguing, and Israel and Iran are driving factors behind this and we'll have to see where it goes from here. Uh, Israel seems like they're in a corner right now. Um, it really seems that way. And even if they were, you know, forceful enough to declare war on Iran to stop them from getting the bomb, I don't see what they would be able to do. I mean, they, they assassinated the nuclear scientists, uh, and they've been doing a whole lot of covert ops raids on Iran, but when you have all these forces against you, I mean, just look, you have Jordan, who we can now add to the list of countries within Iran's sphere of influence, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, well, shoot, that only leaves two more of Israel's neighbors, and that's Arabia and Egypt, and Arabia doesn't even have a land border with Israel, so really that just leaves Egypt, but Egypt is neutral, well, well, as neutral as you can be in all this, 
So we'll, we'll have to we'll have to keep our eyes there, because I, if things get really really bad for Israel, they it's important to remember that they have nukes themselves. And one of the things that I speculate about with regards to the potential for nuclear war is you're not going to use a nuke until you feel like you're losing. All right, that's that's you feel like you can't win. That's the conventional wisdom behind usage of nukes when the other side has nukes too. You're not going to use them unless you feel that you're going to lose. All right, so if Israel does uh, really go through the gutter. And it looks, it starts to look really, really bad for Israel with all these attackers. And they just can't fight them back, not all of them at the same time like they used to be able to. They might use the nuclear option as the last resort. And that could cause a whole lot of problems. Because uh, we know who they're going to throw those nukes at. We know who's catching those nuclear hands, and it's Iran. And how Iran will respond to that in the future, or how countries in the region are going to respond to that, or even the world, really. Because what do you do when a country that's on its last legs empties the clip into its neighbors? Empties that nuclear clip and kills millions. What do you do? How do you respond to that? Now, that could be a very far-off situation, but given the status of things in Israel and the fact that they are nuclear armed and highly paranoid that their chief rival in this region is going to arm themselves with nuclear weapons while at the same time having a sphere of influence that nearly cuts them off, that nearly encircles them, it could get bad. Now, maybe this is just far future, maybe this doesn't happen at all. But Israel is under, they're under siege right now. Some will call it well-earned. Some will say it's a catastrophe. But I say, I say it's something to be paying attention to. And that's as much as I'll say about that. But uh, yeah, last but not least, we have the UN calling for an end to arms sales to Burma which is obviously in response to the military takeover of the country. So, a brief recap, we have French troops in their great war in West Africa um, against terrorists, well, Islamist forces, militant Islamist forces, to be more specific, uh, continuing in West Africa, and they have some casualties there. We have massive escalations and tensions in uh, the Middle East, uh, combined with new leaders in the two countries driving those rising tensions, which is probably going to push them even further to the edge. And maybe even over it, we don't know. And the UN calls for an end to arms sales in Burma. And that concludes today's rapid fire news section. Uh, so, we're going to get into the meat nice and early. And if you're wondering why so early, it's because I have a whole lot of shit. A whole lot of shit. There was like a million summits that I have to cover. <laughs> and then I have the Myanmar update because uh, something interesting popped up there. So we're, we're just going to get into it. We'll cover Myanmar. And then maybe I'll do the second sponsor segment and then we'll just go uninterrupted for the rest of the episode. That sounds nice. But in Myanmar... Or Burma, whichever one you use. I 
have a habit of alternating between them. Uh, we have Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader of the National League for Democracy, that party, uh, who won the election in Myanmar and then was accused of election fraud by the military. And then the military took control and locked everybody up. So the leader of that party, Aung San Suu Kyi, who I'll refer to as Suki, um, for the ease of my English-speaking tongue, uh, she's now being put on trial. And the trial has officially begun. I believe it began Monday of last week. Uh, so after I had prepared the episode, uh, weakness of my the weaknesses of my podcast format. But hey, we cover yesterday's events and tell you how they affect today. And you know what? I'm fine with that. It makes it interesting for me. So, her, she's been putting on trial, and that trial has begun. And I'll be honest, we basically already know how this is going to end. Which is her going to jail, because the military currently controls all of the nation's institutions right now. Uh, so, what we should be focused more so on is um, the proof that the military is going to show... Uh, and if that'll be enough to satiate the angry mobs who are under the reasonable belief right now, at the very least, that their democracy is being stolen from them uh, by an organization that is supposed to be there to protect them, that is the military. So instead of the outcome of the trial, we, sh- we should be focusing on what is said in this trial by the people prosecuting uh, Suki, which is the military. And, yeah, I, I I mean, I brought this up before in probably more than one of my earlier segments that I've dedicated to this particular story, but I feel that I should stress it again now, um, given that this situation is putting, by itself, going to put way more emphasis on whatever proof the military is able to bring to back up their claims. So, and again, I've said this like on the onset of this whole situation back in uh, February, I believe when it happened, when I first started covering it. And I said that the military is going to have to bring that hard evidence. Otherwise, uh, they're going to do serious damage to the country. So I'll stress it again now. Um, right before this trial really, really gets going, and that is that the military of Myanmar is going to have to bring the hardest-hitting, most unquestionable proof, not evidence, not, oh, we believe this, this uh, indicates this, no, 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 they're going to have to bring proof, the hardest possible, most unquestionable proof. That the accusations they've made on Suu Kyi and her party, the National League for Democracy, are true. And they'll need it to be even able to think about a peaceful resolution to the political crisis that the country's in right now. Where you have rioters and protesters in the streets uh, clashing with police and the military themselves. And people dying in the streets right now. You have people fleeing the country, running through the, the countryside to try to get out, you have rising in ethnic tensions, you have a mess, really, is what you have, you have a mess, and the only way that you can even think 
about peaceful resolution to that crisis is if you're able to, like that, win over everybody with some undeniable hard-hitting facts. Like, people who don't even like you have to sit there and say, yeah, you're right on this one, ma, okay, we're onwards with the military takeover, that this is apparently necessary now. That's what they're going to need, but the only way they're going to get that is with the best possible proof that is so unquestionable, undeniable, that that is the outcome. And it uh, it's going to remain to be seen if that's what they have. And I should also stress again that if they do not bring their A game and deliver an S rank legal prosecution in their case, then they'll end up doing a great deal of damage to Myanmar's political system as well as the people's trust in said political system, not to mention the social fabric that's already being that's already coming undone with again riots and protests in the streets clashing with police over this very issue and people dying over this very issue, hundreds of them. And the military truly runs the real risk of igniting a civil war if they fuck this up. So simply put, the military, for the sake of the country and everyone living there, they have to get this right and they have to get it right the first try because if they don't, they won't get a second. And they're not going to they're not going to get it right the first time if they made this shit up. So there's Myanmar. There's a little update to Myanmar. Pretty pretty heavy stuff, but we're talking about a forceful takeover of the government. It's pretty heavy topic, really, but an interesting one nonetheless, and I, they've captivated the world, so I guess it's not too odd for me to be covering it. Anyway, now, um, now we move on to part two of the meat, which is Biden's big day out. Well, his big week out, but you know what I mean. We'll get right to that in just a moment. All right, we're back. So, Biden's big uh, week out. We'll start with a part two to my coverage of the G7 summit, as we talked about it last episode, and some things went down uh, that I will just add to that and say it was all part of the same segment. And then we'll get to the later summits that he had last week. So, with the G7 summit, it didn't go too well. Um, the latter half of it, anyway. It was... It was as bad as I thought slash feared it would be. But then again, when I set the bar that low... Uh... Yeah, well... Actually, no, it wasn't as bad as I thought slash feared it would be. That's what I meant to say. It wasn't as bad. But again, when I set the bar so low, it's not really a compliment. Um, there was apparently a mishap uh, at the summit when Boris Johnson was introducing everyone and Biden tried to correct him by saying the name of the delegate from South Africa. And on that, I'll say that his intentions were well-placed and that what he did was a courteous thing to do. The problem with it was that Boris Johnson had already introduced the South African delegate, so what ended up happening was Biden was humiliated 
and by extension, so was our country. He apparently got lost sometime after this, uh, and he was just wandering through this area at the at the G Summit Summit grounds, and people were laughing at him. And Jill Bi- Jill Biden, not Joe, Jill Biden, had to come and retrieve him because he was genuinely confused about where he was. Uh, maybe he was. Maybe he just didn't know where specifically in the building he was in, because I'd imagine he wouldn't be too familiar with this building, especially having not been there in a couple of years, at the very least. But he was vice president what just over four years ago, so perhaps he was just lost, and Joe Biden had to come get him. But that's not how it seemed. In the video. Um, then Biden was caught in a viral photo of what appears to be him getting scolded, apparently, by Emmanuel Macron and over forces in Libya. Uh, well, he was, he was being scolded over something. That's what it looked like. Um, when Macron was asked about it, he said he was pushing ideas about removing foreign forces in Libya. Uh, And not necessarily being aggressive, but when you look at the photo, which is Biden sitting down and Macron is leaning over him with his finger pointed at him. uh, And Biden's sort of looking down like a, well, like a child who's being scolded by a teacher. You, you immediately, you will immediately get the impression that Biden was being lectured over something. And it's just a really odd image. It doesn't exactly portray strength or as much as it portrays weakness so there's major concerns over that now there those were a few of the scandals to come out of it all uh and again we did talk about this particular summit last episode and how the members were in agreement that they didn't like china but didn't really offer any concrete plans or actions to address china and that much didn't really change uh since we last talked about it so Again, this is a minor update to something we covered, which apparently we covered pretty well last time. So there's that. But now we get on to the meteor meat of the meat segment of the episode. Yeah, that's that's a sentence and a half. Which is the Biden EU summit. So let's get into this. Now the European Council president... Charles Michael uh, was happy to see Biden. We'll we'll just start off with this. And he said that the uh, the U.S.'s return to the global scene was, quote, great news. Uh, And here, too, there was a heavy emphasis on the growing Chinese influence in Europe. Now, a key difference here, though, was that a joint council was formed to address that rising influence, whereas with G7, it was talked about and no one offered any real concrete plans or actions that could be taken in the meantime in the absence of a proper plan to address China. But here we have a joint conference. Well, not conference, a joint council. There we go. So that's been formed. And now... There's an actual means of doing something with regards to strategy and planning 
rather than just talking about the rise of China like people have been very, very content to do for the past decade and a half. So we actually have something in Europe anyway that's meant to, you know, actually do something. I I really want to stress the actually do something, which doesn't necessarily mean action as much as it means something is going to come out of this rather than just potentially words. Uh, Now, the U.S. and the EU also agreed to suspend tariffs for five years, and maybe there'll be a proper trade deal negotiated. Not entirely sure, but at the very least, this is a major development as compared to uh, the last administration where tariffs were put onto the EU and the EU responded in kind. That was the U.S. trade war, well, the parts of it that are immediately forgotten as people focus primarily and really only on the U.S.-China aspect of the U.S. trade policy under Trump. It's really weird how people forgot all the other countries on the list of places we put tariffs on. But I guess the Cold War 2.0 narrative is just a really juicy topic. So juicy that we ignore everyone else. Maybe to our benefit, maybe to our detriment. We'll have to see. I'll just say that I didn't get caught up in that. No, sir. So does that make me a cut above the rest? Maybe. You know? You know, I'd, I'd like to think so. And maybe you watching, watching, maybe you listening to me on this podcast will also think so. And maybe we'll just uh, rise to number one and people will listen to us. Yeah. Yeah, I like the sound of that. But, um, <laughs> anyway, they've suspended tariffs for five years. And while I I do have my doubts that concrete actions are going to come out of the Joint Council, I, again, have to stress that it is something, which is orders of magnitude better than nothing. And quite honestly, this is a much-needed win for the EU. A minor win, but a win nonetheless in having this summit with the U.S., and having something that is potentially meaningful come out of it, that joint council. So, minor win for the EU, you know, don't, don't ever say I didn't, uh, don't say I never did anything for them. Uh, they're, they're in a really bad place, but hey, that's when the pressure makes diamonds, right? Bad places, you, you know, pressure makes the diamonds. Either that or you get crushed in the coal, but we're just gonna hope that the eu doesn't turn to coal for at least this episode next episode who knows all all bets are off i'll probably be we'll probably be talking trash about the next episode i I don't know what i'll be talking about next episode but i bet the next time i bring up the eu's name i bet i bet it's gonna be to say something that is not positive but for now we'll just we'll just take the win for the eu say it's a good thing and we'll move on Uh, It was also a minor win for Biden, this summit, as well as it came with relatively few gaffes and few senile incidents, like him getting lost at G7. And it was also, there was also decidedly less getting lectured to for Biden. And all around, it was a good rebound from the G7 summit. I'll say that, it was a really good rebound, alright? 
And that rebound was much needed because after this came the much-awaited and much-anticipated Biden-Putin summit. Yes, the Biden-Putin summit. The one that I hyped up about a week before it happened. Well, no, I hyped up about two weeks before it happened because we did an episode right before the week that it happened. So I hyped it up. And all the other summits came afterwards, and I had to catch up on those. But now we're here in the post-summit phase, where I get to talk about it in detail. So that's exactly what we're going to do. And I'll start by saying that it wasn't quite an anchorage. So thank goodness for that. Or at least we can't really see if it was, uh, because the format was different. And we never got to see the diplomats talking one-on-one, like we did with the China summit in Anchorage. So, as far as we know, it wasn't in Anchorage, but we don't know all that much, uh, aside from what the Biden and Putin tell us happened, which um, may or may not be as reliable as seeing and hearing ourselves, but... Regardless, we have what we have, and we'll run with it. Now, uh, instead of the format that was used in Anchorage, the two leaders held separate press conferences afterwards, uh, they being Biden and Putin. Uh, In the interview that was done with Putin after the meeting, uh, he was asked a series of tough questions, Um, but one of the things that I noticed about him and his responses to them was that whenever he was asked one of these tough questions like uh the way he treats political opposition or his actions in ukraine or things like that you know really hard questions not exactly softballs but what i noticed was whenever he would be asked these he would pivot and he would pivot in a really particular way where he would bring up something that happened in America, draw an obvious parallel with what was being asked of him, tell them what America did in that situation, and throw it right back at us, and then use it further to justify Russia's suspicion and, to some extent, their animosity towards the U.S. and the West in general. Uh, And one of the examples that I have for this was when he was asked about cracking down on political opposition, namely Alexei Navalny, Uh, who's in jail and he's probably going to rot there as far as the Russian government is concerned, because they don't have to worry about him if he's in jail. So when he was asked about this, Putin brought up the U.S. response to the gen- the incident on January 6th and how the BLM riots caused all this damage throughout our country and he said that he could sympathize with Americans but he said he would do everything in his power to prevent something like that from happening in Russia um so basically he doesn't want mass rioting burning and looting in Russia Uh, and he sidestepped the treatment of political opposition in one fell swoop. So, 
that's effectively what he did when we take a step back and analyze it. And what else would you expect from Putin? So what we have here is, well, Putin being Putin. But um, yeah, there was brief chatter about American prisoners in Russia. Um, not much apparently was gained from these talks. There was talk of trade, and apparently U.S. trade with Russia has grown by 16%, uh, which is the claim made by Vladimir Putin. He calls it a positive development, and uh, of course, he probably would, because that's good for Russian business. And may or may not be a sign that sanctions are going to come undone at some point. I mean, I would personally be on board with removing sanctions on Russia, mainly because I'm just opposed to sanctions in general for countries you're not at war with. If you're at war with somebody, then go ahead. But if you're at peace with somebody, then why are you trying to influence who can and can't trade with them through economic sanctions? It seems to me like an abuse of the position of the dollar, which, as we can see... um with developments in China and, and Russia is pushing countries who are kicked out together. And when you have countries like Russia and China, they just come together, form a massive block, and they sidestep your hegemony. So it seems to me like sanctions are just not worth the time, especially when, you know, a country like Russia is big enough to where they can withstand them and then grow economically still, it doesn't seem like it's worth the effort. It really doesn't. But, um, yeah, so Russian trade with the United States is going up. Um, they also have their Nord Stream 2 pipeline that's almost complete. Uh, I'm sure that got brought up at some point, although neither of them really talked about it. So, I guess that's sort of the... I guess it's sort of a under, it's not under wraps, it's sort of accepted, an accepted reality that Nord Stream 2 is a thing now, and it's not going to stop being a thing anytime soon, so that appears to be an accepted reality, mainly on the part of the U.S. Uh, statesmen, because the Russians obviously wanted to build it, so they're not going to complain that it is, they're not going to bring up that it is, um, but the fact that America uh, didn't bring it up, at least not publicly, says that it is an accepted thing. Oh, excuse me. So Nord Stream 2 is going through. Uh, major criticism of that um, that I can notice, that I can bring up, I should say, is that Biden shut down pipelines in the United States, but allowed the pipeline uh, between Russia and Germany. But truthfully, I don't see what he could have done to stop it from happening. It's not like the sanctions had actually stopped the construction, not really. Because both the Germans and the Russians were pretty pretty devoted to getting that pipeline finished. For all the talk and things that were said, they were both pretty keen on getting this pipeline finished. Uh, the Germans would speak out against the Russians one day, uh, talk about Russian crimes in Belarus and against Alexei Navalny 
one day and then turn around and beg for the oil the next day. Well, the natural gas. So, yeah, Nord Stream 2 is there. Didn't get brought up and probably won't get brought up ever again after it's finished. Uh, and we have, they, they talked about Alexei Navalny, obviously. It was basically a no-brainer that they would, given all the hype surrounding him in his prison cell. They talked about Ukraine, um, and then they talked about cybersecurity. And there was no real compromise that I could, that I could sort of feel out from what was said by the two leaders. Uh, there was no real compromise on Alexei Navalny or Ukraine, so those are going to remain in what situation that they are, and that was really to be expected. But in regards to the third issue that was talked about, that I just mentioned, um, which is cybersecurity, Biden laid out 16 pieces of infrastructure that he said were off-limits to Russia. Now, this is a move that has garnered a, a fair bit of criticism, but I honestly, <clears throat> excuse me, but honestly, even though I get where a lot of that criticism is coming from, and to a degree, I actually agree with the criticism, but I also see the idea behind this, um, laying out, here's some things that are off limits, because I see it as a means of as a means of negotiation, you allow yourself to be vulnerable in this negotiation to gain the trust and hopefully concessions from the other side as well by offering up some concessions of yours first and then you sort of bring them to the table. And so I can I can see the, the play behind it and on, really only time will tell if these moves will be successful. If they are, great. And I'll try to keep my eyes on it so, so that I can give credit where credit is due. But only time will tell if they'll be successful or if we've just given the Russians a list of 16 things that they should definitely, absolutely hack if they ever want to piss us off. And or and or we've given them carte blanche to hack literally everything else that is not on this list, which is the criticism. So. We'll want to see where this goes and how it pans out. But while we're still on the topic of cybersecurity, I guess, an interest, interesting question was raised towards the end of Joe Biden's press conference, uh, which was easy for me to cover because everything was spoken in English. <laughs> Sorry to my Russian-speaking audience, but I'm an English speaker. So... We have, at this conference, uh, what was essentially asked towards the end of it was basically at what point do cyber attacks warrant a military response? So I'll say it again, basically the question that was asked it was at what point do cyber attacks warrant a military response? And in my opinion, my humble little podcast having opinion was that it was the most brilliant question asked in the entire summit because there has been a whole lot of talk about red lines and there's been lots of complaints about cyber attacks 
and lots of concern over their frequency and the vulnerability of modern infrastructure to them, and subsequently, there's been lots of concern over the potential damage that cyber attacks may cause. But there has never been a real proper answer to that question. It just gets sidestepped and ignored. Now, when I look around, and I'm sure you all are in the same boat as me with this, when we look around and see that nearly everything is going virtual or online or is being digitized in some way, shape, or form uh, from previously analog to now you have access to the Wi-Fi, uh, and I can just look at my TV, for example, my TV isn't a smart TV, but I have it hooked up to my Xbox, which suddenly makes it a smart TV, and I can watch YouTube on it instead of having to get a laptop. When you look at things like that, and actual smart TVs, and you see um, how everything is everything, and I do mean everything. There's probably going to even be a, a bed that's hooked up to the internet at some point, I I don't know when we'll get to that point, but we'll probably get there sometime, and you'll be able to select how you want the bed to feel. Do you want it to feel like a carpet, or do you want it to feel like you're sleeping in the king's throne room? Who knows? But this trend of everything going online isn't stopping. And when we look around, we can see with our own eyes, year after year, that it's accelerating. And this is largely due to the digital nature of the new industrial revolution. Um, so... The danger, then, that cyber attacks pose to our lives is not only currently set to increase, and we can see where it is now with things such as identity theft or stealing your card information online through a scam, little petty crimes that can have really big consequences. That's where it's at right now. And you can lose quite a bit just from those. Uh, quite a bit being your whole identity. And that the proof that you are who you say you are. Even though you look exactly like your ID. But you can lose everything already. At like a personal level. With where it is now. And all it takes is you uh, signing on to the wrong scam. But... We and, and I, I, I guess before I move on, I should also bring up the Colonial Pipeline hack. That that faded out of the news really, really quickly, but let's remember that it happened, and that it was a cyber attack, and that our infrastructure for energy is also weak, um, weak to cyber attacks apparently. Maybe maybe our intelligence agencies just aren't doing their job, but our energy infrastructure gets hacked. How do, you, how do you hack oil? You hack the systems that are transportate, that are transporting the oil. That's how. So, and again, even that's becoming digitized. Back in the day, you just build a pipeline. And you had the machine. And if you wanted to get into the machine, you had to interface with the machine. But now you can hack the machine from the other side of the world. You can, the little machine that controls the flow of oil in America. Yeah, you can hack that from Eastern Europe now. That's the sort of vulnerabilities that we're looking at as we modern as we have modern infrastructure and modernize the systems around old infrastructure too, because it's not just new things that are electrified 
in this new way, it's, again, I'll go back to my TV. My TV is not smart. It's a regular old TV, but because it's hooked up to my Xbox, and my Xbox is new-ish, well, it's an Xbox One, but I can connect to the internet with the Xbox. And it suddenly it makes my TV, an old piece of infrastructure, as vulnerable as a, say, a smart TV. No, I need the Xbox for that to happen, but I have this system, which is my Xbox, for my old infrastructure, my TV. And for something like a pipeline, you have the pipeline, the old infrastructure, and the systems and control mechanisms surrounding it being updated. And that makes that old piece of infrastructure, which by itself wouldn't be vulnerable, because it is hooked up to these new machineries and these new um, means of controlling it and accessing it, it then becomes, by extension, just as vulnerable to new, more modernized um, equipment. And that's the trend we see moving forward. So when we start to see major uh, summits like this, uh, where major issues are being discussed, and you have questions being asked, it is really important to see what people have uh, you know, on the table for cybersecurity. I mean, people talk about it a lot, but nothing ever really gets done, or proposed, really. I I've seen a whole bunch of discussions on cybersecurity, but the closest thing to a discussion on how to stay safe and how to not get hacked is to... Um, not click on spam, not click on spam, uh, maybe have a VPN, and keep track of your passwords, maybe change them uh, occasionally, don't give your passwords out, and if, you, if you're using something and it gets hacked, and they lost, the, and the hacker gained access to password information, you change your password, that's about as close as we get to the topic nowadays, and as we move forward, it's going to become bigger and bigger. So that's why I put so much emphasis on it now. And that's just the, the vulnerability aspect of the cyber attacks. And which raises the question back to what, I, what I've dedicated this segment of the episode to, which is at what point do cyber attacks warrant a military response? I've just gone on a whole tangent about how even old things can suddenly become vulnerable to cyber attacks when they're hooked up to new things. So as that vulnerability increases and as old infrastructure goes away and what is currently new becomes the old and the new is already hackable, when that becomes old... And what's newer is even more hackable than what we have today that we call new. Well, what happens then when everything, literally everything, can be hacked and attacked through cyberspace? What happens then? Because at that point, the potential for provocation is going to be way greater for somebody hoping to pick a fight with somebody larger than them if that somebody is more vulnerable to, say, cyber attacks. And that's sort of the caveat. The more developed you are with this, the more vulnerable you're going to be. But the more vulnerable you're going to be, the more you're going to be looking for a way to respond 
to getting hacked and having your critical infrastructure hacked. Imagine if America's entire economy depended on whether or not the oil could flow through that colonial pipeline. Could you imagine how the country would respond to the hack? Could you imagine how much more differently we would have responded to that hack? We'd be looking for the nearest asshole to throw nuclear hands at. Who's going to catch these nuclear hands is what would be the question of the day, not who hacked the pipeline. No, 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 no. Who's catching these hands atomically? That would be the question. And that, that would be a major escalation, but that escalation would be made possible by the greater and greater vulnerability to these hacks. At what point do... At what point does a cyber attack warrant a military response? Because let's let's be honest, we don't have an answer right now. We really, really don't. Our lives are becoming more vulnerable to it, which means that at some point, at some point as our lives, and our infrastructure, and our governments, and our institutions, um, uh, both public and private, as everything we live off of and use and depend on becomes more and more vulnerable to to potential cyber attacks, and the access to the internet and potential hackers becomes greater and greater through more and more people getting online, um... At what point does a cyber attack warrant a military response? Because, again, what do you do? We don't have an answer to the question. Do you do you respond in kind by hacking them back the way they hacked you? What if they what if they hacked your your oil infrastructure but they're dependent on coal? How do you hack them? Do you hack their coal? Uh, do you respond in kind or do you respond asymmetrically? So if they hack your oil infrastructure, maybe you hack their water treatment plants instead. Something asymmetrical, not necessarily tit for tat, but still sort of gets the message across and is still a retaliation that has meaning. At what point does that escalate? Who knows, really? I mean, do you... Do you respond like... uh, Do you respond like just full force every time something happens i mean what if some kid gets paid a hundred bucks by his government to hack the bank account of a low-level staffer in your country do you declare war over that how would how would you even fight the war what's what's the acceptable limit what's the limit to what you take what's the limit to what you can take and does drawing that line make you vulnerable to other entities, be them government or non-governmental, to attack your flanks. So if you're saying, this is off-limits, like what Biden did with the 16 things of infrastructure, if you say, this is off-limits, do you then not do anything when other things get hacked? Because there's plenty of other things to get hacked. Plenty. I'm sure there's Plenty just within the infrastructure department uh, that aren't on that list of 16 things that could theoretically be hacked 
and major damage could be caused by hacking them. So what do you do? Do you do a full military response to that? I mean, if you get nuked once, the the prevailing theory is that if you see the nuke coming, uh, or that you deploy as many nukes as you can in response. And that's the great fear of World War Three, is that we're gonna some guy is gonna get loosey goosey with the nuclear bow the nu the nuclear bow the nuclear codes and they're gonna fire a missile. And everyone else is gonna see that and go, hmm, maybe I don't wanna get nuked today. Maybe I don't wanna lose my ability to retaliate by allowing him to hit me first. So I'm gonna empty the clip on him. If you get hacked, do you just hack literally everything else in their country? and Or do you fight a war of attrition where you go, Oh, you hack me, I hack you. Oh, you hack me? Well, now I hack you two times. Oh, I hack you three times. Oh, you hack me five times? Wow, you hack this, 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 and that. Maybe I'm gonna hack that. Is that how it goes down? Or do you just do a full-out assault on every piece of critical hackable infrastructure that they have? Do you hack their water treatment and their sewage at the same time so they can't have clean drinking water and they can't flush the toilet? Do you hack or do you, in response to getting, say, the lights turned off because they hacked your power grid, do you just hack, say, <clears throat> the in, the internet there? So they can't, even though they have power, they can't access the internet. Do you just do that instead? How do you respond? And at what point does this response and counter-response and back and forth and this cyber exchange of hacking, at what point does that escalate to, you know what, I'm just going to get the bullet and take you out the, the old-fashioned way? Where's the line? And we, we really don't know where the line is. I can't draw the line. I... I, I certainly can't draw the line. I struggled to keep up with my little examples I gave to sort of give you an idea of the situation we face. I have absolutely no clue on where we sh could or even should draw the line, let alone where we would. Uh, I, I really just don't know. Maybe some new technology is going to come along and it'll make It'll make us all invincible to being hacked. And only the the biggest and grandest of schemes are going to actually succeed at hacking, um, which would centralize the ability to hack to, say, governments and really, really large uh, private entities. Well, corporate entities, anyway. So, is that where we go? Or does the advance of technology continue to democratize technology... And make it available for everyone, which means everyone's able to hack everyone uh, if they try hard enough. And you can never really defend yourself. Is that where we go? And if that's the case, how do you? How are are you even able to respond? Are you just not? It, it, can you just sit there and get uh, your water cut off? I don't know. Do they do they turn off the floodgates on the dam and you get a whole valley flooded? Because you could do that, and it would kill a lot of people. Or do you turn the floodgates on and never allow them to open again, and you get a bigger flood that destroys the dam? I don't know. How do you respond to that?
I mean, we know there's a footprint, and you can find who hacked you, and that's how they find all these hackers in the first place. But what do you do when you found them? Again, what if a government pays a kid, some some random kid, in his mom's basement, a hundred bucks and says, Here, Billy, go hack that, go hack Jimmy over there. Okay. Well, they show him on the phone, you see this? This is Jimmy. You're gonna hack Jimmy. Alright, Billy? You got that, Billy? Okay, you, you do your job, Billy. Here you go, here's a hundred bucks. Oh boy, thanks, Papa Government. I'm gonna hack the crap out of Jimmy. And then Jimmy gets hacked and his government has a panic attack and now you're on the brink of world war. How would how would you fight that war? Would it would it stay in the realm of cyber or would you eventually get military as militaries and armored vehicles and troop movements, not just militaries and the military hacking agency in the department? Um how how would it escalate? Would it get to the point of uh, the real world, because it definitely has real world consequences, I can tell you that. How do you fight that war? Do the cyber attacks just continue until the war is over? It does it stay cyber? Or do they the cyber attacks continue long after the war is over? So really nothing changes, but you fought a war over the period of time. These are some really, really interesting questions indeed, and I feel, because I really don't know, so I'll just vomit them all out at the same time to get them off my mind, I, they're worth asking, really, and those are probably just a short, short list of the much longer list of other questions that could be brought up by people who know more about all of the things that can be hacked than I do. Those are just some of the things off the top of my head uh, that I wrote down for the, the, today's episode. Well, what happens if you get your air conditioning cut off because it gets hacked? Well, there goes a whole bunch of frozen food. That's massive stores of food. People are going to starve to death now. That, that's what you're talking. People starving to death. So is that siege warfare? Or is that just you killing people is it a war crime do you prosecute them properly for that how do you how do you respond to this because you can do so much you can do so much but you can get away with so much at the same time things that you would never be able to get away with if you did it in person you could rob a bank well some people get away with doing that nowadays well back in the old day too but you could you could cause a famine and not be a government institution. You could cause a famine and you just walk away with it. You just walk away with it. Nothing could be... If they can't find you, you have a bunch of proxies and VPNs and you change your IP address and you're, from, you're operating from one location and you, you leave and go to a different location so they can never find you. You could, you could get away with so much. Uh, and very few people, really. That's, that's what we're looking at with the advance of technology. And it's, it really does raise the importance of finding an answer to this question. Because I, for the life of me, have no clue on how we answer it. Maybe you do. And 
hopefully someone who does can uh can pitch it and it'll become national norms maybe even international norms on how to deal with being attacked in cyberspace but if something tells me it'll take probably a military conflict for the boundaries to really get worked out the practical boundaries not necessarily the idealistic ones but the practical ones but that's cybersecurity and all i i'll sort of bring it back to the biden's putin summit specifically biden's um biden's press conference after because after he was asked this question, which, again, I believe is the most brilliant question that was asked throughout the summit and really throughout this entire week of these summits, uh, he was also asked, well, no, 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 he, well, Biden, during a tangent, uh, after being asked this, he went, on a, he went on a bit of a tangent about, which he laid out, you know, if I could get my English together all this talk about being an English speaker and I can't speak but after this Biden went on a tangent and on this tangent he laid out he laid out his perspective on the geostrategic environment between China and Russia and he believes that Russia is going to view a rising China as a threat rather than as a friend he did this when he was talking about how Putin has to show strength because Russians um are unified when the government is strong, not necessarily by any ideology, which is a pretty accurate statement on Russian history. They do value stability, I'll say that much. Uh, so that was interesting to see that that was his view on the situation between China and Russia, and he believes that China, not, he believes that Russia, again, is going to view China as a threat, rather than a friend, or currently as a strategic partner. And it is because they the two view each other as strategic partners that I think Biden is wrong on his assumption regarding the two. Or at the very least, it'll take a couple decades before he's right. But at that point, we won't even be talking about the same strategic environment anymore. Things, things will have changed within China and Russia at that point. Uh, significantly if it makes them uh, not so friendly towards one another or even enemies like the Sino-Soviet split back in what was it the 1970s uh, what was the the 1960s uh, some, sometime around there uh, my Cold War history is a bit rough but yeah uh, I think he's wrong in his assumption that Russia and China are going to view each other as enemies um, at least for the time being. And so, but, but, yeah. Anyway, overall, Biden seemed to stress international norms and the need for Russia to comply with them. Uh, this is throughout his press conference. He brought it up multiple times. Uh, he also emphasized uh, that nations and their leaders act in accordance with the national self-interest. So well, that was interesting to see him sort of portray. Uh, I certainly wish he would act with the national self-interest of America uh, before shutting down pipelines that give us cheap energy. But that is a criticism um, for a different topic. Criticism for a different topic. But yeah, overall, overall, I'd say that 
he out of this he came uh, without any major gaffes or mishaps uh, which is really good so overall the fact that there were no major gaffes or mishaps with this Biden Putin summit uh, that leads me to believe it not believe it leads me to the conclusion that the summit at least publicly was mildly successful now again we didn't we didn't actually get to see the diplomats talking to one another but from what we could see uh, on both ends the russian and uh american end of the summit spectrum from what we could see this was a mildly successful summit things of consequence were talked about some things uh, some progress on some things were made and overall it does appear to be mildly successful which is good because i thought this was i was afraid this was going to be an anchorage so that's a major major uh one up from what i feared this was going to be and a major major one up from what the week started off as which was uh the g7 summit so G7 bad, EU summit okay, and Biden-Putin summit a little bit more okay. I'd say that's a win, and you know what? I'll take it. But that is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And as we always say, the world is changing, folks, and we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.